Well, tonight we start the eighth book of the Bible, the book of 1 Samuel. And just a little progress now since Genesis chapter 1. This is our 61st study, this time through the Bible. So in the last 61 studies, we've been able to make it all the way up to 1 Samuel. That's 236 chapters. How many of you have been with, with us now since Genesis chapter 1? Yeah, bunch of hands go up. So here's what we've done. Here's what we've done so far. There are 929 chapters in the Old Testament. You got it? 929 chapters. We've now studied 236. That means that we are now quarter of a way through the Old Testament. How about that? You didn't think you could do that, did you? We are well on the way. 236 chapters tonight. We're going to cover three more. 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3. The life of the prophet Samuel was a stream of unbroken faithfulness to God. Plot Samuel's years on a timeline and you'll find no breaks for rebellion, no seasons of sowing wild oats, no lapses of spiritual laziness, no bouts with moral compromise. Samuel's mother dedicated him to God from his infancy and Samuel remained devoted to the Lord for the remainder of his long life. Samuel's life is an example of what I call compound godliness. Now, when you open up a money market at the local bank, you expect to benefit from some compound interest. The money you make makes more money. The interest rolls back into the investment. It feeds on itself. It builds and grows and snowballs. And the same principle applies to spiritual investments. The person who lives for God receives compound benefits. A heart devoted to purity grows increasingly pure. A mind fixed on heavenly thoughts becomes more and more elevated in its thinking. A will bent toward God grows in the direction of that bend. It leans out further towards God. A spirit willing to muster faith adds muscle to that faith. Jesus says in Luke chapter 8 verse 18, Whoever has, to him more will be given. This was Samuel. Years of compounded purity and loyalty and faith and listening to God all added up. It compounded into a man of character. This man Samuel was a man of integrity and spiritual stature. His years of godly living had bestowed on Samuel an authority that enabled him to hold this nation in check and to usher in a new age in Israel's history. In Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1, the Lord is bemoaning the sin of a future generation when he makes this statement. Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, My mind would not be favorable toward this people. Notice, though, God himself lumps Moses and Samuel into the same category. Both were powerful intercessors. Guys, here's why young people particularly need to live your life for Jesus. It's because faithfulness compounds like interest. 
A life devoted to Jesus at an early age not only benefits you now, but the years of godly living will grow into a stature and an authority that God will use mightily. Make too many withdrawals from God. Don't let godliness have an opportunity to accrue. Create too many lapses on the timeline, and you will certainly lose out. In the days of Samuel, God needed a man of stature and influence to lead the nation through a transition period. You see, Samuel was the last judge, and he was the first prophet. The prophets were men that God would raise up to speak his word to the kings of Israel. Samuel was the prophet who oversaw the beginnings of Israel's monarchy. He anointed the first two kings, Saul and David, and he gave them needed instruction. Samuel's ministry was similar to the ministry of John the Baptist. Both were lifelong Nazarites, and both were forerunners of Davidic kings. Samuel served David first in that divinely appointed lineage, whereas John served Jesus the last of that same lineage and, of course, heir to the promises of God that he had made to David. Samuel is often called the prophet of prayer. And on several occasions, we'll see him rallying the nation to pray. As we read in Jeremiah 15, he was a mighty intercessor. In fact, when he died, the entire nation gathered to Samuel's home in Ramah to mourn his death. The people of Israel loved Samuel because they knew that he had loved them. Well, the story of Samuel begins in chapter 1. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Good southern girl, Penina. Panana had children, but Hannah had no children. Once Mark Twain was challenged by a bigamist Mormon to quote a verse that would prohibit bigamy. Twain answered, that's easy. No man can serve two masters. God's ideal for marriage was one man and one woman in a lifelong relationship. God tolerated polygamy or bigamy as he does divorce today, but it was never his intention. Recently, Middle Eastern archaeologists have unearthed a cuneiform tablet. Maybe you've read about this in the news. That They deciphered and they read, and, and it was entitled, The Top Ten Reasons No Man in His Right Mind Would Want Two Wives. And here's the translation from the ancient Semitic Chaldean. Number 10, twice as many birthdays and anniversaries to remember. Number 9, you have to pick who gets the second garage door opener. Number 8, by the time two wives take a shower, there's no more hot water. Number 7, who can afford two dozen roses on Valentine's Day? Number 6, when it comes to choices, it's now two against one. Number five, your one drawer and half a foot of closet space gets cut in half. Number four, two honeydew lists. 
Number three, do you really want to decide who gets the master bedroom? Number two, two mother-in-laws. And the number one reason no man in his right mind would want two wives, PMS twice a month. Well, apparently Elkanah had never read this top 10 list. For if he had, he would have added one more reason why two wives are not a good idea. They might not get along. Polygamy can spawn fierce competition. It doesn't take long for brides to become rivals. The husband and kids end up caught in the middle of wifely warfare. Verse 3 tells us, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. Elkanah and his family would make their annual pilgrimage to the tabernacle. They would go up to observe the Jewish feast. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. What a provocative comment. The Lord had closed her womb. Did you know that God is sovereign over all things, including human conception? The Lord can close a womb. The Lord can open a womb. And at times, he will do both. Childbearing couples need to trust the Lord. Hannah loved the Lord. She was a godly woman. If all Hannah had to cope with was God's will for her life, she probably wouldn't have gotten so upset. Hannah could trust the Lord exclusively. But it was this panana that was causing all the trouble in her life. Verse 6. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. This phrase, to make her miserable, could be translated to violently agitate. Literally, it refers to a thunder clash. In other words, Hannah was an emotional storm because of Penina. In ancient times, Barrenness was the heaviest burden that a woman could bear. It carried the stigma of a curse, but the digs from her rival had made matters worse. Well, there's no doubt that Penina was a jerk. But Elkanah had exacerbated the problem. You see, he loved Hannah, and he hated to see her suffer. And so to compensate, Elkanah gave her these special favors. At the tabernacle, it was a double portion of the sacrifice. But I imagine Elkanah gave Hannah twice as much of everything. Probably twice his time and twice the grocery money. And two weeks of vacation to Penina's one. And double the mad money. And one of those minivans with the two sliding side doors rather than Penina's traditional model. And how do you think Panana reacted to Elkanah's extra shows of affection? She hated it. And she retaliated by bombarding Hannah with little cutting comments, little biting barbs. 
Panana would brag about how well her children were doing in front of Hannah. And then she would make comments like, and what about your kids? Oops, I'm sorry. I'm sure it was all that Hannah could do to keep from slapping the old girl silly. Spilling coffee in her lap or something. And so it was, catch this, year by year. Year, long year by long year. Can you imagine? When she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Hannah could steer clear of Penina around the house. She managed to live a separate life. Her daily routine avoided contact with her rival, but once a year, these two wives shared a common space. Every year, Elkanah loaded up the family in the minivan and made his pilgrimage to Shiloh where he worshiped God at the tabernacle. And this is where the sparks would fly between Hannah and Penina. Every chance she got, Penina would stick it to Hannah. Another dig, another poke, another slap in the face. Hannah loved God, but boy did she hate these trips. The conflict between her and Penina spoiled her worship. It distracted her focus from the Lord. What should have been a joyous occasion, a joyous celebration, ended up being a miserable time of exasperation. I'm sure that Penina would have preferred to just stay home alone. But the tabernacle was God's house. It was Hannah's duty to meet with others and to worship at Shiloh. It was commanded by God. Staying home sounded appealing, but it wasn't an option acceptable to the Lord. Guys, here is a lesson to us. We too are liable to meet a Penina at God's house. People at church, other people can be jealous of your fruitfulness. They can become a source of irritation and frustration and aggravation for you. And our temptation is to just stay home alone. Why should I have to put up with that penina? But you see, staying home from the house of God is never an option. At least not an option acceptable to God. Hebrews 10 verse 25 instructs every believer to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Guys, don't let a penina rob you of the fellowship and encouragement and worship and opportunities to serve that we glean when we all meet together. God knows all about penina, and yet he still wants you to be involved in your church. Well, in verse 7, Hannah is so upset she can't eat. She's sulking during supper. Elkanah tries to cheer up in verse 8. Her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? He loved his wife, certainly. He hated to see her so upset. But Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. She went up to the tabernacle to pour out her soul to the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, 
If you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but you will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Hannah asks the Lord for a baby boy and she makes a twofold vow. First, if God answers her request, she'll see to it that this little boy serves the Lord his whole life long. She'll take him to the tabernacle, she'll turn him over to the priest, and she will enroll him in the ministry. Second, she also says that she'll take a vow and her son will become a lifelong Nazarite. Now you remember what a Nazarite was. Samson was a Nazarite. The Nazarite was a walking billboard for the virtues and the values of God's kingdom. It was a threefold vow. First of all, he stayed clear of the grape soda. He found his pleasure in the spiritual things, not in the physical. He never cut his locks. Attractiveness for the Nazarite was found internally, not externally. And he avoided contact with the dead, anything that was dead. His life stood for eternal, not temporal pursuits. Samson was also a Nazarite. But the problem with Samson was that he had too many lapses in his timeline, too many withdrawals from godliness. Faithfulness failed to accrue in Samson's life and therefore failed to turn into character. And as a result, in times of testing, Samson yielded to temptation and ended up violating his vow. You see, it's amazing. Samson and Samuel were alike outwardly, but they were very opposite inwardly. Well, I love Hannah's prayer. Remember me and not forget your maidservant. After we got married, for two years, Kathy and I tried to have a child, but to no avail. And I witnessed firsthand the passionate prayers of a barren woman. Boy, did Kathy pray. And somewhere along the line, she latched on to Hannah's words here. And she kept praying this prayer, Lord, remember me. Lord, remember me. In May of 1982, we attended a pastor's conference where Kathy asked the wives, the pastor's wives, to pray for her that she would have a child. And as they prayed, one of the ladies spoke a word of prophecy. And through this lady, the Lord said, by this time next year, you will have a child. Now, this was the last weekend in May 1982. To make a long story short, Zach was born May the 29th, 1983. One year to the date. The very same weekend Zach was born, we were truly blessed. And in light of Kathy's prayer and Hannah's prayer, they prayed the same prayer, we named our son Zachary, which means remembered of the Lord. Wow, the power of a passionate prayer. James 5 verse 17 is true. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Pour out your soul to God and he'll pour out blessings on you. Your youth pastor's proof. Verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her... I'm trying to teach my boys to watch their mouth too, by the way. 
Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. I mean, Hannah's prayer was so passionate, so raw, so emotional, that Eli thought she was tipsy. Who's this drunk woman coming into the tabernacle? Her lips moved, but no words came out. She was praying from her heart. You see, unlike most folks who came to the synagogue, Hannah's goal was not to impress the bystanders, but to do business with God. When you pray, is that your goal? To do business with God. You've got to think it was no accident that the man who was called the prophet of prayer had a mother who put it to practice. I have no doubt that Samuel gained his passion for prayer, the power he had in prayer from his godly mother, Hannah. You know, there is a difference between saying prayers and praying prayers. It's a huge difference. Too many people have turned prayer into a performance. It's the point in the Sunday program where a man stands up and he prays to the people, not really to God. Once there was a man who stood up in church and he shouted out his prayer and one little boy whispered in his mom's ear, Wow, if that man lived closer to God, I bet he wouldn't have to shout so loud. (laughs) Probably true. Hannah prayed like her prayer mattered. Do you pray like your prayer matters? Well, one thing's for sure. Prayers that don't matter to you here on earth will certainly not matter to God in heaven. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. Nine months later, God did just that. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. And the word Samuel means heard by God. Now the man Elkanah and his wife went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Now until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word." And so the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephoth of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as your soul lives My Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. 
And I love Hannah's beautiful words in verse 27. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I ask of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. I'll never forget the Sunday morning when everyone had left the church except for my wife, my kids, myself, and Kyle. We looked around for Kyle's parents, but they were nowhere to be found. Eventually, we learned that Kyle's mom and dad had driven separate cars that morning, and each parent had thought the other had Kyle, and so they had left him at church. (laughs) It was funny. (laughs) But that's kind of what Hannah did with, (laughs) with Samuel. She left him at church. Of course, it was arranged, and Samuel had duties to do. But like Hannah, we all really do need to give our kids to the Lord. Now, don't bring them up here and drop them off, please. (laughs) James has got four. I got four. We got enough. But please, give your kids to the Lord. We certainly need to follow, maybe not the literal action of Hannah, but we need to follow in her spirit, in her example, Hannah realized that her son really did belong to the Lord. Her son was God's property. Samuel had only been given to her on loan. Parent, did you know that your child is a loner? That's right. He's been given to you. She's been given to you on loan. Now, if I were to borrow a car, I would go to great extremes to take care of that car. I would make sure that I did nothing to damage it. It doesn't belong to me. Likewise, this is how we should treat our children. Though you're footing the bill, they still don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord, not to you. Keith Green used to sing a song of devotion. I pledge my head to heaven for the gospel. The second stanza got harder. I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. But for me, the third stanza was the toughest of all. I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. You see, it's okay for me to take on the risk and trust the Lord and go to some foreign country to share the Lord in hostile situations. But what's my reaction when my son or my daughter wants to go? Have we really dedicated, given our kids to the Lord? You see, parenting is really a process of giving back to God the gift that He first gave to you. From day one, you're really turning loose of your child a little at a time. Author Alfred Torrey writes, It needs courage to let our children go. But we are trustees and stewards and have to hand them back to life, to God. As the old saying puts it, What I gave, I have. We have to love them and lose them. (laughs) This is the role of a parent. This past Wednesday, our third born left for college. And we've missed him dearly for the three days he was gone before he came back home last night. (laughs) But we will miss him. And this is just the beginning. He's gone to college, but he'll be gone for good soon. But here's what we have to remember. He never belonged to us. 
He doesn't belong to us now. But the illusion is, is, that, is that we thought he did. He never really belonged to us. He never has. He was given to God on the day he was born. God has a plan for Nick's life. And we gave him to God again last week. And I'm sure we'll have to give him to God again and again and again. Well, in chapter 2, Hannah prays again. This time she praises God for granting her request. Hannah's praise could be entitled the triumph of the underdog. That's its theme. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Hannah had horns? No, her horn was her strength. You know, the horn on an animal is the strength of the animal. And so the Old Testament idiom, the horn was a person's strength. Her strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. And you know who she's thinking about. Old Panina. She kind of looks over in the minivan and old Panina and she just cracks her a little smile. God's blessed me too. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. And in verse 3, she surely addresses Penina. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. God alone is the all-knowing judge. Oh, we make assumptions, we jump to conclusions over mere speculation, but God alone is the judge. The, bow, bow, the bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. In other words, God has now turned the tables. She says, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased from hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Boy, the Lord knows how to turn the tables, doesn't he? The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings to the grave and, and brings down to the grave and then brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. God is the God of the underdog. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. In other words, a poetic way of saying, God has laid the earth's foundation. God is in charge of this earth. For he will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. This is why we should trust in his strength, not our own. Well, in verse 10, Hannah's prayer becomes a prophecy of the end times. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Later in Israel's history, God is going to promise his people a future king who will reign over all the earth for all eternity. The Hebrews will call him the anointed, which means Messiah. Here God promises strength and exaltation to His anointed. Verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. As a young boy, Samuel is now given back to God.
In verse 12, the scene shifts from Hannah's family to the family of Eli, the high priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. It's sad when men who supposedly represent God don't even know Him. And it happens more than you might think. Remember from Judges what happens to an ungodly person? They eventually become an immoral person. Remember, ungodliness produces unrighteousness. And that's what happens here. They don't know God and they start to act like it. And in the next few verses, we have the crimes of Eli's family exposed before us. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now. And if not, I'm just going to take it from you. Remember when an animal was brought to the tabernacle to be sacrificed, it was first divvied up. The fat belonged to the Lord. The fat was burned first as a sacrifice to the Lord. The right breast and thigh went to the priest, and the rest of the sacrifice was eaten by the family that had brought the beef. Eli's boys were strong-arming the people. They were demanding more than their share. They were even taking it by force. Thugs had invaded the tabernacle and were working for the priests. These priests were greedy men. It reminds me of the pastor who described to some fellow pastors how he dispersed the Sunday offerings. He says, well, I take all the money that we collect and I throw it up in the air and what God wants, he keeps, and what I'm supposed to take falls back to the ground. <laughs> it's sad when a pastor becomes a ripoff, when his sole motive is to pad his own pockets. And here's the greatest tragedy, verse 17. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Notice that. The priest had turned the people off from giving to the Lord. People resented giving to God because they knew their money would be used foolishly and selfishly. Whew. Guys, if you don't give to the Lord, that's between you and the Lord. But I definitely don't want it to be because of me or because of our management of the church's funds. This is why we account for every penny. We try to be good stewards with every single penny that you give. We try to use every cent wisely. We don't want to be the reason you don't give to God. Verse 18, But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, 
wearing a linen ephod. And of course, the ephod was that priestly apron. The priest was part of the priestly uniform. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was lent to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Boy, once she got the ball rolling, she couldn't get it stopped, could she? Three sons and two daughters. I tease Kathy sometimes. You know, we had such a hard time having the first one. But then we ended up with three more. I tell her that, you know, barren Karen became fertile Myrtle. (laughs) Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And note the contrast. Samuel grew before the Lord while the sons of Eli sinned more and more against the Lord. Notice this. Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. How blasphemous. Eli's boys were not just pickpockets, they were perverts. Verse 22 tells us they committed adultery in the door of the tabernacle. They had no shame. And I'm sure they gave their sexual perversions little spiritual justifications. Not long ago, the Atlanta newspaper profiled the promiscuity and the abuse of Bishop Earl Polk. Here was a pastor with a long track record of illicit affairs. And he justified his adultery by calling it kingdom relationships. Evidently, he explained to the women that he committed adulterous affairs with that God had given them the special privileges of ministering to the man of God. That makes me want to puke. It's a gross example of spiritual abuse and religious malpractice. And Eli's boys were conjuring up probably the same kinds of justifications for their actions. And so Eli said to them, and notice how this father now deals with his wayward children. Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? You see, the one thing worse than the boy's sin was their father's weakness. Eli hears about this perversity, but all he gives his boys is a proverbial slap on the back of the wrist. Eli exercises no discipline. He levies no punishment. He takes no action. Hophni and Phinehas are turning the people off to God. And all Eli does is offer this mild, lame, weak, wimpy rebuke. That's it. Reminds me of the man who bristled up. He said to his wife, you better watch out. You're making me mad. You're going to bring out the beast in me. His wife kind of snickered and said, who's afraid of a mouse? 
Hey, this was the boy's reaction to Eli's wimpy rebuke. Verse 25 tells us how perverse these boys had become. Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. They had become a blight on the work of God. And yet notice this. In the midst of all this priestly corruption and unhealthy tolerance, we're told in verse 26, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. Samuel is growing and prospering under the care and tutelage of Eli. Other than his mom's once a year visit when she brought up the little robe that she made for him, he's being reared by this old priest. And this boggles my mind. Why would God entrust the upbringing of a boy like Samuel, who would play such a pivotal role in the history of the nation, to a father who had failed so miserably as Eli? And here's the answer. Amazing grace. I have found that God is very merciful to parents, and I'm so glad. God gives Eli a second chance at being a parent. Maybe you've blown it as a parent. Maybe you've made mistakes raising your kids. But the Lord has now blessed you with another opportunity. Maybe now you find yourself in a blended family and kids are once again under your roof. Or maybe you've had a child late in life and you find yourself starting over. Or perhaps you now have input in your grandchild's life. Or maybe your kids are still at home. You've blown it. They know it. You know it. But God is calling you to humble yourself and ask for His forgiveness and ask for their forgiveness. Here's the good news. If God gave Eli a second chance at being a parent, He'll certainly do the same for you. Well, even though Eli was afraid to discipline his boys, God was not. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel says, I said, indeed, that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. You remember that movie, Chariots of Fire? You remember the guy, Eric Little, who said he would no, not you know, run on the Sabbath day. He refused to violate his conviction, and so he chose to run in another race. They say that when he stepped into the starting blocks, someone walked up to him and handed him a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper were written these words from 1 Samuel. Those who honor me, I will honor. That was written on that piece of paper. 
He went on to win the race and I think set a world record. I'm not sure. Notice though here, God is changing his mind. He's saying, I intended to bless you, Eli, but, but with what I'm seeing, I, I'm not going to bless you anymore. I'm going to judge your house. God is changing his mind. Did you know God can do that? Did you know that God can change his mind? God can do that. God's character is immutable, but his plans, they can be altered. They can be changed as they were here. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that I will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please, Put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. Now here's a promise that's not fulfilled for at least another 120 years. 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 27 tells us, Solomon removed Abiathar from being priest that he might fulfill the word of the Lord which he spoke concerning the house of Eli at Shiloh. Abiathar was the descendant of Eli, and the priesthood was taken from the house of Eli and given to another priestly family, another descendant of Aaron, a man named Zadok. God fulfilled his judgment on Eli. Chapter 3. Then the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Notice in a day of no widespread revelation, Eli encouraged and instructed Samuel to minister to the Lord. He maintained a spiritual emphasis in the boy's life. Eli was not going to make the same mistakes with Samuel that he had made with his own sons. I think all parents need to recognize that we too live in a day of widespread secularization. Not a lot of revelation from God being taught in our schools today. This is why you as parents need to stay active and involved in your child's spiritual training. Keep a spiritual emphasis in their lives. And it came to pass at that time while Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow so dim that he could not see and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. And so he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. He said, I did not call you. Lie down again. And he went and lay down. Notice God calls Samuel, but he mistakes, the boy mistakes, the voice of God for the voice of his dad. Parents need to realize that all kids are liable to make this mistake. Our earthly dad is usually our first impression 
of our heavenly father. Hadad's influence is colossal. This was hammered home to me one night many years ago now. I was praying with Mac. He was just a tot at the time. And in his prayer, he kept going back and forth, referring to the Lord as first God and then dad. And then he'd talk to God and then he'd talk to dad. And it went on and on until suddenly I realized that in his mind, he was associating his heavenly father and his earthly dad as the same person. A good parent will always remember that they are an ambassador for God. They are God's representatives. Christian musicians, Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they have a song that puts a father's prayer to music. It has a memorable line in it. It goes like this, God, I want to be like you because he wants to be like me. Dad, always remember you represent God to your child. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel, So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he answered, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. Then he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you did call me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Suddenly dawns on Eli what's happening. His eyesight might have been deteriorating, but evidently his insight was still sharp. He was aware of what was happening, of what God was doing in the heart of his child. Here's another key to being an effective parent. Look for insight into what's happening in your child's life. God is speaking to them. God speaks to all of us, and God is speaking to your child. Encourage them to listen. But you try to pick up on what God might be saying so that you can help them identify God's voice and the instruction God wants to give. If they're confused, help explain. If they're weary, provide some comfort. I've heard it said, the key to being a good parent is to grow antennae, not horns. Often a behavior our child exhibits, oh, we don't like it. It's something we want to gore. In reality, though, it's a cry for help, and we need to be sensitive to it. With your kids, be sensitive, be perceptive, be on the lookout for a teachable moment. Try to discern what God's doing in the life of your child. Well, Eli finally realizes that God has been calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. This is going to be some shocking news. And that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows. And here's God's grievance with Eli in a nutshell. Because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. We all need to realize that as a parent, our primary responsibility, our primary purpose 
in the life of our child is to restrain our kids. Did you know that? We can pay their bills. We can educate them. We can entertain them. We can be their buddy. We can be their coach. But a parent's top job is to discipline their kids. Nobody else can do that. I have responded to rebellion with a belt on their bottom. God told me to. Spare the rod, you'll spoil the child. That's not in the Bible, but that's true. I've used a bar of soap to discipline my kids. A good mouth washing with a bar of soap. It has an impact. Now that they've gotten a little older and they've gotten hardened on both ends, on their head and on their rump, I've had to find other ways to discipline my kids. So I've taken away car keys. And here's a great mode of discipline. I've taken away cell phones. And it gets their attention. I've corralled aimless energy with on-the-spot push-ups. I'm called by God to address the attitudes and the deliberate defiance of my kids. I'm convinced there are times when a parent's place is in his kid's face. Our job as parents is to restrain our kids. Hey, the Word of God and just one night in the preschool department reveals that kids are sinners by nature. And it's our job as parents to curb that rebellion while insisting on the child's obedience and respect. Never forget, because Eli failed to restrain his kids, God's brought judgment on his house forever. That's why I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to discipline my kids. It's my job. Therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. In other words, their judgment has already been decided. Verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. How to imagine so. And then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here I am. And he said, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God do so to you and more also if you had anything from me of all the things that he said to you. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Apparently, nobody was as aware of his painful failures as was Eli himself. And so Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, everyone in Israel knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet to the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 